0: By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be
1: liable for losses arising from your use of the information. I'm Danielle Reed, and this is Moody's Talks Focus on Finance. In today's episode, we'll be looking at the intersection of the Russia-Ukraine military conflict and the digital world. First, I'll be talking to Rajiv Bamra, who heads Blockchain Strategy for Moody's Investor Service, about cryptocurrency and why it's probably not all that useful for evading sanctions. After that, my co-host Miles Nelligan will talk to Sarah Hibbler of the Property and Casualty Insurance team about cyber insurance and specifically What could happen if there's a large-scale cyber attack that originates from the Russia-Ukraine military conflict and then spills over into other countries or regions or even goes global? Miles, hi. It is nice to see you again.
2: Thanks very much, Danielle. It's great to be back.
1: Just briefly, Miles, what is the main concern from a cyber insurance standpoint about a large-scale cyber attack that could originate from the Russia-Ukraine military conflict and then spread to other regions?
2: Well, the main concern is that such an attack might originate in a zone where there's active fighting, you know, where there are bombs, where there are bullets. Uh, And that's because this might trigger what's known as the war exclusion clause that's written into most cyber policies.
1: And that clause means that the insurance might not pay out if there's an active military conflict? Correct,
2: although it hasn't really been put to the test yet. Cyber insurance is a fairly new product, for one thing, but it's also worth pointing out that cyber policies did in fact pay out in the NovPetya cyber event of 2017, which did go global, uh, but was actually found to have started out as a Russian attack on Ukraine.
1: So even though one could have argued it was an attack in the context of a military conflict in the wake of Russia's annexation of Crimea, the cyber policies paid.
2: Right. But the military conflict right now is much more widespread and uh, policy wording around war exclusions has never been standardized. And uh, this does seem to raise the possibility that some insurers might decide the war exclusion does apply to certain cyber insurance claims.
1: Miles, thank you. That is going to be a really interesting conversation. But first, I'm here with Rajiv Bamra to talk about cryptocurrencies and how they may be really not all that useful for evading sanctions. Rajiv, welcome back to Focus on Finance.
3: Thank you, Daniel. Great to be here.
1: So, Rajiv, financial and trade sanctions are a big topic right now, given how much sanctions are being used as a geopolitical tool. And that's most notably in the ongoing Russia-Ukraine military conflict. Sanctions are imposed by one country on either another country or sometimes also corporations or even individuals. But the intended effect is to limit the sanctioned entity's ability to conduct financial transactions and so therefore to apply economic pressure to that country, corporation or individual. Is that about right?
3: That is right. Yes.
1: Okay. so the reason we're talking about cryptocurrency is that there's been a big question about the degree to which cryptocurrencies might be a means for sanctioned entities or individuals to evade sanctions because cryptocurrencies are supposedly anonymous and untraceable. And I say supposedly because, you know, actually, they're more traceable than people think. And just as a reminder to our listeners, we did talk with Fadi Masi back in April about how regulated digital asset platforms like Coinbase are actually subject to a lot of the same new York customer and anti-money laundering rules as other financial institutions. And that is one way authorities have been able to keep tabs on crypto transactions. But, Rajiv, in your report, you looked at the market size and liquidity of crypto and how that plays into whether these currencies can be used to evade sanctions. Can you tell us a little about that? What does the depth of the crypto market really have to do with how useful these currencies are for evading sanctions?
3: Uh, Yes, of course. So, according to the US Treasury, Russian financial institutions conduct about $46 billion worth of foreign exchange transactions globally on a daily basis. In comparison, ruble to Bitcoin market has only around $200,000 in liquidity at any given time, thereby capping the potential volume of transactions at a very low level. Upon analyzing publicly available data from a few known blockchain intelligence firms who are working with a range of government agencies and departments, we were able to deduce that the amount of cash needed to operate a major economy like Russia Far outstrips the current ability of crypto markets to handle such large volumes of business uh, besides at least from what is known so far, the existing financial infrastructure in Russia is not sophisticated enough to allow large-scale crypto transactions in order to circumvent the multinational sanctions being imposed
1: I see so in other words you're saying there's really not enough liquidity to make Bitcoin that useful to an entity trying to evade sanctions okay and and you also mentioned non-exchange trading infrastructure or mixing services in your report what are those and how do they fit into whether or not crypto can be an effective tool for evading sanctions
3: so let's take bitcoin as an example it is common understanding and even you touched upon this topic earlier in our conversation uh, that bitcoin is anonymous because all transactions are only linked to a cryptographic address However, in reality, Bitcoin addresses are what I would call uh, pseudo-anonymous in a way that Bitcoin does not reveal the owner's identity, but realistically, owners can be linked to an exchange or a wallet with KYC requirements, or even an IP address and other metadata used for Bitcoin transactions. This is where mixing services come into play. Mixing service is basically a software which enables users to conceal identity to prevent others from tracing a transmission back to its source. Uh, These services help reduce the transparency of crypto transactions and financial flows and could be utilized by sanctioned entities to hide their identities and avoid blocks on exchange platforms.
1: Interesting. So what is the estimated market liquidity levels of these mixing services?
3: Uh, So, the liquidity levels of these mixing services are estimated to be $30 million per day, which is still low compared to the uh, volume of transactions globally from Russian financial institutions.
1: Right, because it's 30 million versus, um, I think you said 46 billion, something like that, right?
3: Yes, that's correct.
1: And okay, so given the low liquidity of the crypto market, do you think crypto would be an effective store of value for sanctioned entities You know, to maybe park some money and wait it out, wait for sanctions to be lifted?
3: Cryptocurrencies uh, uh, have generally acted as stores of value uh, based on what we see in the market today and less as a medium of exchange. And therefore, uh, I would say they could be a safe haven asset in times of turmoil for sanctioned entities.
1: Got it. And. Another reason you mentioned crypto might not be so useful for evading sanctions is that government authorities are going after some of the digital venues themselves, right? I'm talking about, you know, unregulated entities here. In your report, you talk about Hydra. Can you explain what happened there?
3: Sure. The U.S. Department of Treasury has stated that approximately 86% of the illicit Bitcoin received directly by Russian virtual currency exchanges in 2019 came from the Hydra marketplace. So back in April this year, the U.S. Department of Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control announced sanctions against the world's largest and most prominent Russian-language darknet market, which is the Hydra market, and another entity called Garantex, which is a ransomware uh, enabling virtual currency exchange registered in uh, Estonia, but was operating in Russia. Also, on the same day, Germany's Central Office of Combating Cybercrime and the Federal Criminal Police Office announced the takedown of Hydra Market. On the regulated side, as you mentioned earlier, and Fadi has mentioned this in his report on cryptocurrency and regulation, for digital trading platforms that are regulated, like Coinbase and or Binance, for example, there are a lot of means for authorities to enforce blacklisting of sanctioned entities and to trace transactions.
1: I see. So on the unregulated side of crypto trading, authorities are cracking down, and on the regulated side, they already have quite a few means to trace transactions. Rajiv, thank you so much. And we're now joined by Miles Nelligan, who will be talking to Sarah Hibler about cyber insurance and how the Russia-Ukraine conflict might affect coverage should there be a cyber event that originates from that military conflict.
2: Thanks, Danielle. And a big welcome to you, Sarah.
0: Hi, Miles. Glad to be here.
2: Now, Sarah, one of the risks from the Russia-Ukraine conflict that has companies and governments worried uh, is the perceived threat of cyber attacks that might take place in the context of that conflict, but which could then spill over to other countries. Now, Now, so far, that hasn't actually
0: happened, has it? You know, the threat of cyber attacks as a result of the military conflict remains high. In mid-April, the Ukrainian government said they had blocked an attack against their power grid that could have caused widespread blackouts. There was also at least one large attempt to spread malware that was thwarted, according to the U.S. government sources. The concern, of course, is something like the NotPetya attack, which happened in 2017. That attack was attributed to the Russian government and its efforts to destabilize the Ukraine. But that malware quickly went global.
2: Okay, so I guess it's fair to assume that cybersecurity experts are still very much on the alert.
0: Absolutely. The risk is still very much present. Several U.S. government agencies have issued a cybersecurity advisory urging critical infrastructure organizations, especially in the energy sector, to take specific steps to bolster their cyber defenses.
2: Right, and you've written a report on what that means for cyber insurance, Uh, and in that report, you discuss in particular the language in most cyber policies that might exclude coverage for certain types of event uh, if they occur in the context of of a military conflict. Can you tell us more?
0: Sure. Standard property and casualty policies have historically had a war exclusion because in the context of war, insurers could be subject to catastrophic losses. Within cyber insurance policies, there's also a war exclusion. But interestingly, the language within the cyber policies and the war exclusion itself is not consistent across the market and the world. So war exclusions vary and they remain largely untested in the courts. There's also quite uh, complex coverage issues.
2: Uh, Now, now the 2017 Novpetya attack that you referred to a moment ago is the major historical precedent for a cyber attack that went global, but which in fact originated in a country that was uh, arguably engaged in a military conflict. Uh, Now, in that case, insurers generally paid out claims that came under the cyber insurance uh, policy. Is that right?
0: Yes, that's true. The insurers that provided standalone cyber coverage did not invoke the war exclusion but paid the claims related to the NotPetya attack. In contrast, the property insurers, which specifically did not exclude cyber coverage, invoked the war exclusion, which resulted in protracted litigation.
2: And how does that influence what could happen if we do see a cyber attack on a large scale uh, that originates from the military conflict zone?
0: In the event of a widespread, severe attack that began as a result of the conflict, Insurers could invoke the war exclusion for individual policies, but it would really depend on the facts and circumstances at the time. How the war exclusion would apply to impacted parties outside Ukraine is a complex coverage issue and would likely be litigated. Interestingly, the London Market Association has come out with definitions that would exclude coverage for war from cyber insurance policies. And other markets are also developing exclusions, working toward a market standard.
1: Sarah, ransomware attacks have resulted in significant claims for insurers in recent years. In fact, your team has published some research about that. How has the insurance market responded in terms of rising claim trends?
0: Well, several years ago, cyber insurance was quite profitable. Since that time, say, starting in 2019 and really accelerating through 2021, claims have significantly increased due to ransomware. And so insurance companies have responded in a couple of ways. They've been raising premiums by double and even triple digits, depending on the insured's loss experience. They've been reducing policy limits, increasing deductibles, and changing terms and conditions. Importantly, insurers are requiring insureds to have basic cyber hygiene, such as multi-factor authentication, as a prerequisite for coverage. Insurers have also been requesting additional information around things like third-party vendors as well as critical security controls to protect against ransomware attacks. All of these actions, and specifically those designed to strengthen insured cyber practices, will help improve the profitability of this line of business over
1: time. I see. So we're really going to maybe see this, some of this unfold over the next several years. Sarah, Miles, and Rajiv, thank you all very much for joining. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you'd like to read any of the reports referenced in this episode, you can find them by clicking the link to this episode at about.moodies.io slash podcasts. And please tune in again for future episodes of Focus on Finance.
0: Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, Please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.